Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner. I am your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, Sit Down and Shut Up, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, and many other books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is sponsored by your donations, and if you'd like to donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my Patreon and PayPal accounts. Those are my main means of economic support, and I really appreciate your donations. But as always, this is offered for free, so you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. Today's offering was recorded at a restaurant called The Eloise in El Paso, Texas on March 9th, 2016. I was on a book tour promoting my book, Don't Be a Jerk, and in this offering I am talking about Genjo Koan, which is a famous piece by Dogen, and its teachings of no self. I cut out a bit of introduction here in which I tell the audience who Dogen was and when he lived. I'm going to assume that listeners to this podcast probably know that already. But the rest of the discussion, I think, is real interesting, and I hope you enjoy it. There's a couple of funny audio dropouts here, but trust me, you don't miss anything. You'll just hear sort of a sentence sort of start in the middle, uh, and it only happens a few times. Don't worry about it. You haven't missed anything. I've checked it out for you. Anyway, let's listen to me in 2016 talking about the concept of no self. This is from a piece called Genjo Koan. In Genjo Koan, my teacher translates that as the realized universe. Uh, and it was written originally as a letter. Um, Dogen returned to Japan and different people got interested in what he had to say. And one of them was a guy, we don't know really much about this guy except his name and where he lived. He was uh, named Koshu, and he lived in Kyushu, which makes it even even easier. Um, Kyushu, if you know, if you don't know Japan, is the southernmost of the major islands of the Japanese archipelago. Uh, so it's quite a distance from where Dogen was, which was uh, near, probably near Kyoto at the time, on Honshu Island. So he wrote this as a letter to uh, Kosho in 1233. So Dogen was born in the year 1200 by our calendar. It's easy to figure out how old he was any time you see a piece of dated writing by him. So he's 33 years old. This is one of the things I find interesting about Dogen that I like to point out that I don't find pointed out by a lot of people who write about Dogen, which is that um, he started writing when he was 27 and stopped in his early 50s when he got too ill to continue. We don't know exactly what he died from because diagnoses weren't quite as sophisticated in those days. Uh, it was probably, people speculate it was tuberculosis, but um, in any case, uh, so he wrote most of his stuff when he was quite young by our standards and quite young by Zen standards. When you, when you get most books um, attributed to some Zen master, what you're generally getting is one of two things. Uh, the minority are things written by that Zen master himself or herself uh, at a very elderly age. You know, so they wait until they're you know, quite old and uh, then when they figure they don't have much time left, they start writing down their philosophy. That's kind of a normal pattern. The other pattern you get is uh, students of uh, some Zen teacher, usually, again, an elderly Zen teacher, writing down what that teacher says and then conveying it, you know, putting it together in a book. 
Uh, what you get in Dogen is something uh, different. What you get is the words of, of Dogen himself. Uh, we even have some of the manuscripts preserved that, in his own handwriting. Um, and, and also the, the writings of a guy who's quite young. So while he is extremely wise, he comes off kind of um, young and snotty. I don't know that he really does that in Genjo Koan, but I'm going to read Genjo Koan to you. And this is my uh, mutated version of Genjo Koan. The, um, the cover of this book, which I, I, I like, I like the way it came out, was something I, I didn't draw this, but it's, it was my idea, and I think the artist uh, who's called Johnny Crabb actually made it look a lot better than what I had uh, envisioned. Um, so it's this sort of monster destroying a temple. Um, which is kind of what I did with Dogen's work. Um, so he's so this sort of, in, in sort of ancient Japanese motif. So we'll read um, How I Destroyed Dogen. When all things are Buddha Dharma, there's understanding and misunderstanding, there's training and results, there's life and death, there are Buddhas and just plain folks. When the zillions of things and phenomena are seen as having no self, there is no misunderstanding or enlightenment, no Buddhas or just plain folks, no life and no death. The Buddha Dharma is originally beyond having lots and having little, and so there is life and death, delusion and realization, just plain folks and Buddhas. But although this is true, flowers, though we love them, still die, and weeds, though we hate them, still grow all over the place. Pushing ourselves to practice and experience stuff is delusion. When stuff actively pra practices and experiences us, that's realization. Those who understand misunderstanding are Buddhas. But to have misunderstandings about understanding makes you just a regular person. Some folks attain realization based on realization, and some just get delusional about delusion. Buddhas don't need to recognize themselves as Buddhas, but when they practice the state of Buddha, they go on experiencing the state of Buddha. Even if we use our entire body and mind to look at forms and hear sounds, perceiving them directly, our perception isn't like the reflection of the moon in water. When we look at one side, the other side is dark. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be experienced by the zillions of things. When experienced by the zillions of things, our own body and mind drop away. Then we can forget about realization and allow that forgotten realization to continue forever. When you first look for the Dharma, you're far away from it. But when the Dharma is transmitted authentically, you are immediately your own original self. Firewood becomes ash and doesn't go back to being firewood again. We shouldn't think of firewood as its past and ash as its future. Both firewood and ash have their own position in time and space. The past and future are cut off. Firewood and ash each have their own past and their own future. Just as ash doesn't go back to being firewood, human beings, when they die, don't come back to life again. We Buddhists don't say that life turns into death or that death turns into life. Instead, we talk about no appearance and no disappearance. Life is what happens while we're alive and death is what happens when we die. We don't say that winter becomes spring or that spring becomes summer. Realization is like the moon reflected in water. The moon doesn't get wet and the water isn't broken. The entire moon and sky can be reflected in a dewdrop on a blade of grass. Realization doesn't break the individual. Realization doesn't break an individual, just like the moon doesn't break the water. 
and an individual doesn't hinder realization, just like a dewdrop doesn't get in the way of the sky. The depth of realization is like the height of the moon. When the Dharma hasn't completely filled your body, mind, body and mind, you feel like you're totally full of it. But when it does fill you, you feel like there's something missing. For example, if you sailed way out into the ocean and looked around, you'd think the ocean was circular, but it's not. It's got all kinds of little corners and shapes and all that. When fish see the ocean, it's like a palace. When gods see it, it's like a string of pearls. But we human beings see it as round. Everything's like that. There are all kinds of situations in the world, but we can't really understand them. If you want to understand them, you have to remember that oceans and mountains have all sorts of characteristics you can't see. Even you, just as you are right here and now, have a whole lot of aspects you're completely unaware of. Just bear that in mind, okay? When fish swim, there's no end to the water, and when birds fly, there's no end to the sky. The more water or sky fish or birds use, the more they can make use of. The less they use, the less they need. Each one covers the whole of water and the entire sky. So water and sky are life itself. Practice and enlightenment are just like this. If a fish tries to understand the water or sky, apart from swimming or flying in it, it can't do so. When you find the place you actually are, you actualize the fundamental point. Likewise, if you just penetrate one thing completely, you understand everything in the moment of real action. This, right now, just this, just reading this book or whatever it is you're doing, this is the place where reality exists. And that is why we can't realize it. Because we can't step outside of what is and look back at it. We're part of it. Even when you realize everything, you don't imagine you'll intellectually understand it or even notice it. It's beyond your knowledge. Once Zen master uh, Mayoku Hotetsu was fanning himself on a hot day, his student came up to him and asked, since air is all over the place and goes everywhere, why are you using a fan? The master said, you only know the abstract principle that air is all over the place. You don't know that it goes everywhere. The monk said, okay then, what's the fact of it going everywhere? To answer this, the master just kept fanning himself. This is the authentic Buddha Dharma. Somebody who says air is all over the place, so why use a fan, doesn't know why people use fans. The behavior of Buddhists makes the earth manifest itself as God and ripens the Milky Way into delightful cheese. That's what he really says. And everybody, and everybody likes cheese, right? Except vegans. And even most of them like it, they just don't like the way it's produced, which I respect. Uh, that's the end of that one. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know if that deserves a part. So that's pretty, that's pretty hairy and difficult, even when I dumb it down. Um, so um, I'd like to say a few things about what I think it means. And break a glass. Uh, maybe somebody would be kind enough to do something about that, so I can kill myself. Um, but uh, I just dropped it back that way. <laughs> Sorry. I'll just move forward. Sorry about your glass. But this is punk rock, right? So we're. Uh, so that um, that little bit is uh, about the more or less. It's about a lot of stuff. But one of the main things it's about is this whole Buddhist idea of no-self. So, um, 
in the chapter that precedes that, I wrote my own ideas about no self, but I'm not gonna try to read that out loud to you like it's story time. I'll just see if I can give you the live version of it. Um, there's, no, there's no one aspect of Buddhist philosophy I think that gets more difficult for people than this idea of no self. Um, when I first um, I, I thought of it the way I think most people do. I thought I had a self and I ought to eradicate it. Um, or I thought the idea is so absurd I don't know what to do with it. Those are the only two things I could come up with to deal with that. You know, you could say there's no Loch Ness Monster or there's no, you know, I don't want to say in front of these kids Santa Claus. Um, or, or any of that, and that, that I can understand, right? You can, you can, you can say these things and, and people know, you know you're just denying something that other people believe in and, and it's not true. But if you start saying there's no self, what can you make of that? You know? Because I know I have a self. It's, it's the only thing that I seem to know if I'm going to be a, a soplicist? I don't know how to say Soplicist, or how do you say it? Yes. About it. Um, it's the only thing I know, that I have a, that I am a self. But, but so, when you hear this Buddhist idea about it, you, um, it just sounds absurd. So the, the only thing I could do with it uh, to try to make it make any sense, and I'll tell you why I tried to make it make sense. I had a, I had a good teacher. I had this guy named Tim McCarthy, who was my uh, original Buddhist teacher. He's still alive, he lives in Ohio. And uh, I trusted him. Uh, he, he just seemed like a guy who wouldn't um, tell me lies, right? And he believed this idea of no self. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can make something of it. If I hadn't trusted him, I probably would have just rejected the idea entirely. So what I, I thought initially to try to make any sense out of that was that I did have a self uh, and that it was my duty to somehow eradicate that. And, and I think... Um, Okay, I'm going to read you this, this paragraph because I think it's better than what I could try to improvise. Um, my understanding of self was that it included my personal jumble of likes and dislikes, attitudes, ideals, personal history, beliefs, habits, hobbies, and so on. I figured I had to somehow get rid of all that stuff and become a complete, clean, blank slate. If I could whitewash everything I considered to be me, I would be rid of self, and then I'd stop being such a wreck all the time. So I went about trying to do that. Uh, the problem with that, though, it became clear kind of early on, because I could see my teacher, and I could see that he was not this whitewashed non-self thing that I imagined non-self to be. You know, he had a he had a very strong, and still has a very strong and distinct personality. Uh, he, has, he has very strong opinions on stuff. He, he likes Star Trek a lot better than Lost in Space. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a fan of um, Frank Zappa and comic books. Um, he, 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 you know, he has, he's very, he's a very idiosyncratic person. So I could, so I could look at that and go, okay, well, that's not what no self is. What is, what does no self mean? Um, so while I was studying this, I came across a book. Uh, actually, Tim gave me this book. I actually had to buy this book to be part of it. I took a class with him uh, at Kent State University, and one of the required books was a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which some of you must have read. Uh, I highly recommend it. And in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, in a chapter called Emptiness, Shunryu Suzuki, who's the author, says uh, this. When you 
sorry, when you study Buddhism, you should have a general house cleaning of your mind. You must take everything out of your room and clean it thoroughly. If it is necessary, you may bring everything back in again. You may want things, yeah, sorry, you may want many things. So one by one, you bring them back in. But if they're not necessary, there's no need to keep them. Uh, that was a scary idea to me because I wasn't then and I'm still not the world's best housekeeper and I'm kind of an accumulator of, of stuff. If any of you ever gets the chance to have to chaperone me when, uh, when I come to an out-of-town gig like this, I'll want to go to record stores or used bookstores and then I'll just buy crap uh, and, then, and then try to figure out how to get it back home again with me. Um, this is the kind of person I am. So this kind of idea of like cleaning out myself was, was harsh. But what was even worse was that it wasn't cleaning out my room he was talking about, it's cleaning out my mind. And I didn't want to do that because I thought if I clean out my mind, I'll lose myself, I'll be gone. Uh, I lived in Japan for 11 years. And after having lived in Japan and looking at this uh, chapter again, I just had this flash and I, I understand what he's talking about but doesn't get conveyed in the English translation. Um, anybody here ever lived in Japan? Okay, okay. There's this there's this practice there called osoji. You know osoji? Maybe I'll explain osoji. Osoji is something. It, it translates to big cleaning, and it's something uh, people do tend tend to do at the end of the year. And what you do is you take everything out of the house. And really, the people who are serious about it, like my ex-wife's parents, um, they would literally take everything that wasn't nailed down out of the house. Uh, and put it on the, nobody has big lawns, so they put it, they kind of shove it all onto the, the, you know, the driveway or part of the street and whatever, and then just clean, you know, clean the whole house down and clean each chair and knickknack and whatever else and bring them back in. So this is, this is, uh, I'm absolutely certain this is what uh, Suzuki was thinking of. So that's kind of what, what we're talking about here. Uh, it's, it's uh, a pretty, a pretty intensive process. Um, let me read a little bit about that. Okay, let me read you the book. It'll be easier to, to do on, from the book because I spent some time working on the words. This idea scared me because it wasn't just paperback novels I'd finished reading or broken guitar effects boxes I, I finally had to admit I'd never get around to fixing that he was telling me to throw away. He was telling me to throw away pieces of me. Uh, that is a much scarier prospect. It wasn't just scary, it sounded utterly impossible. Uh, for me, this was especially rough because I prided myself on being a true individualist. I got through high school knowing that even if I were just a, if, even if I was just a nerd boy and all the pretty girls ignored me, at least I was truer to myself than the jocks and the preppies who liked what everybody else liked and dressed the way everybody else dressed. Uh, I dared to be different and I was, I thought, justifiably conceited about it. I had to be, it was all I had going for myself. Now here I was, just a couple of years out of that mess, being told uh, to clear all that stuff out. What would I have left if I did? Would I become a mindless vegetable? Would I turn into one of those culties who just stares blankly into space all the time? Or worse, would I become just like the jocks and preppies I hated, accepting everything that the mainstream media told me because I had no self and therefore no opinions of my own? Or would I just be opening myself up to being brainwashed by my teachers? 
Would I be just like the pod people from Invasion of the Body Snatchers? The prospects were not attractive. Um, but working on this for a while, what I discovered is a kind of new way of conceiving it uh, that I've been trying out with audiences around here, uh, around wherever I go and talk, which is, it's not so much that there is something called self and we want to get rid of it. There are things that there is a category we call self, and into that category we place a lot of aspects of what we experience in the world. And, you know, personality experience, uh, personality aspects, likes, dislikes, uh, the fact that I am standing here and you are standing or sitting over there, uh, and so on. We we can we compress that all together and call that self. What the Buddhist masters are saying isn't that that doesn't exist, because that would be stupid, uh, is that the word self is not an adequate explanation for what that is. Uh, the word self is, creates a kind of a fiction that is useful sometimes. You know, you can say, it's my credit card, not your credit card. That's my seat, don't sit in it, you know. Uh, that's their glass that I broke, <laughs> it's not my glass. Uh, and it'll probably be taken out of my pay for the night, um, though I'm not getting paid. Uh, but, <laughs> which is why I want you to buy the books at the end of this thing. Um, and I will read a little bit more of what I wrote, and then we'll try to just open it up to Q&A. Uh, to see how far we can get here. The word used in early Buddhist writings for the concept of self is Atman. Atman was an idea propagated by many Indian philosophers and is similar to the Christian idea of the soul. It starts from the sense of I am that all of us experience. This I am feeling is taken as evidence that there is a permanent abiding something in us that remains stable and constant throughout the changes we experience. Thus, the soul you had as a four-year-old child is the same soul you have today. This soul is different from the body because even though the body clearly changes, the soul does not. Many philosophers further extrapolate that the soul survives the death of the body. This makes sense if we accept the basic idea of the soul. If you believe that the soul remains unchanged while the body ages, it follows that the soul is not the body, and it therefore follows that the soul, sorry, that the soul would go on even after the body decays and dies. The Buddha completely rejected this idea. First of all, he noticed that what we refer to as the soul or the Atman does change. Our personalities do not remain static throughout our lives. We mature internally as well as externally. The Buddha did not accept the idea that the body and mind were two different kinds of substance. Yet something experiences the world uniquely in the case of each one of us. Now, you are reading this book, or in this case, listening to it. Somehow, my thoughts about self are being conveyed to you across time and space. My thoughts are not exactly the same as yours, or you wouldn't have bought this book or come to this lecture. Uh, you are not me, and I am not you. What, what are we to do with this except to say that you have a self, and so do I? Even if we don't accept the idea of the immortality of the soul, the idea that mind, sorry, or the idea that mind is made of some kind of ethereal substance that is different from matter, we have to accept that your mind and my mind are not the same mind. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't need to have conversations or read books or watch movies or listen to music in order to access each other's thoughts and feelings. Most of us are taught that looking at things this way is the only correct way of understanding the world. I think everyone experiences the other side of the equation at some point in their lives. As children, our sense of self is much more fluid than it becomes later. We also have moments of transcendence when the barriers between ourselves and others fade away. Sometimes this happens during sex. Sometimes it happens in large public gatherings like concerts or sporting events. Sometimes it happens in religious services and ceremonies. We all know about this other side of human experience, but we are conditioned to disregard it. Or we imagine that it only happens at rare, special times and places. We miss the fact that this transcendence is actually continuously happening throughout every moment of every day. Meditation practice helps make this clearer. Moments of transcendence and oneness no longer seem like anomalies. You start to notice that your individual identity and the identity of the universe itself are not two separate things. Certain Indian philosophers who meditated took this as evidence that the individual Atman was part of a supreme Atman that was basically the soul of the entire universe. They called this super-Atman Brahman. And just to confuse those of us outside India, they also called certain people who preached this idea Brahmin and named their chief god Brahma. So it's super confusing. Be that as it may, this Brahman is said to be Sat-Chit-Ananda, or being, consciousness, and bliss. Yet, like the Atman, Brahman is supposed to be something apart from the material universe. The Buddha could see no reason to believe in the existence of something beyond the material universe. It's not that he thought matter was the only thing there was. Rather, he saw that matter and the immaterial were different aspects of the same unified reality. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. The idea of no-self means that we do not interrupt this oneness with our individuality. In the January 1985 issue of Matter magazine, my all-time favorite singer-songwriter, Robin Hitchcock, told an interviewer, uh, and he was playing up in, um, in L.A. He was playing in L.A. while I was here, so that was on my birthday. Um, so, you folks have a lot to answer for. Um, well, no, the, the folks in Austin do. Anyway, he said this, inasmuch as a mind can discuss itself, it's a bit like a mirror looking at itself. Only I don't know how much truth there is in that. You put two mirrors up against each other and there's infinity, but you can never see it because your head blocks it off. We are both individuals and expressions of the universe. These are not mutually exclusive. And Dogen talks a lot about this in Shogogenzo, and then I set you up for the next chapter, which I just read to you. So that's what um, I wrote about it. And it must be true, because I wrote it. That's not true. <laughs> um, I, don't know. I don't know if it's any good. Uh, does that spark any questions or debate, or anyone giving me a cup of water that I won't drop? <laughs> Maybe that sparks that? No, nobody else gives me a couple more. Oh, I'm so sad. Because um, <laughs> now my mouth is all dry and I got nothing to break. Um, except yourself. Yeah, except myself. That's true. That's true. No? Nothing? I'll go. Sure. Okay. And so, just being sort of a nascent uh, student of Buddhism, mm -hmm. probably not even nascent, like, every 
guy. Embryonic student Buddhism, yeah. Um, like we all are. In terms, of, in terms of that fully understanding what you just read about no cell, yeah. I've always sort of understood that in Buddhism there's a the belief that we reincarnate into something else uh, mm -hmm. based, based on the sort of life that we live. Yeah. Um, so I don't really fully understand if, if that's partially true, I suppose, by your reaction. What if, and then if there's no self, what is it that reincarnates? Yeah, that's that's a question. So if there's no self, what is it that reincarnates according to Buddhism? I will try not to break this. Well, I, I have another chapter, which is one of the things I talked about in, in Austin the other day about the whole idea of reincarnation. So I'll try that to I'll try to truncate that. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of times, I hate talking about reincarnation, and for the same reason that um, Kurt Vonnegut, the author Kurt Vonnegut, said he never puts a love story in a book because uh, it, once you put a love story in a book, that's all, the only thing people want to read about is the love story, and they don't they miss the whole rest of the book. Um, and so it seems like if you write about reincarnation, everybody just gloms onto that and then doesn't doesn't pay attention to anything else. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine because because it is a um, it is an aspect of, of Buddhism, and it's uh, to be honest, one of the first things I got interested in because I, I first got interested in Buddhism. Partly because, as a teenager, I suddenly realized I'm going to die someday. Uh, and there are reasons for this, and, and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Uh, I think a lot of teenagers go through this, but mine might have been slightly more intense than, than a lot of other people's. Um, and I did that meant. Uh, and when I looked at the sort of... Uh, I don't want to color this as the Christian idea, just the sort of Christian idea that I was exposed to in Northeast Ohio when I was a young person. I, I realized that there's a lot of Christianity that's far more sophisticated than this. Uh, so, um, but the way it was explained to me by the churches I went to was that you died uh, and then your soul floated up to heaven and got judged by Jesus according to whether it did good things or bad things. And if it did good things, it got to go to heaven forever. And if it did bad things, it went to hell forever. Um, and I thought, I thought that was crazy. Uh, and the reason I thought it was crazy is like, what if you're just like one good, you know, let's think, what if you're just one bad deed over, you know? One more night of masturbation over the line, you know, related to how many old ladies you helped across the street, and you're gonna go to hell forever. You know, that, that seemed, you know, I didn't, I couldn't imagine God would, would do something like that. It seemed ridiculous. So when I came across the idea of reincarnation, that, um, that made better sense, at least, you know, compared to the two, uh, which is that you, you got do-overs, you know, you could, um, if you did okay, you got to go to a higher realm, you know, or a better uh, version of the human realm, or if you didn't do so good, you'd, you'd get uh, docked a few points, and then your next life you'd have to do something else. Um, that idea is something that my teacher said was not part of Buddhism. But that sounds absurd because uh, you, can go, you can go look at lots of Buddhist books and they'll espouse ideas like that. Now the idea that they usually, if you usually get, if you get into the more nuanced versions of there is no, re, there's no soul but there is reincarnation, they'll usually get into metaphors. And the metaphors, I don't know if they're any easier, but I'll, I'll give you two that I know. 
off the top of my head, I'm going to try not to break this. There it is, right? Um, so uh, one of them is bubbles in water. So we just had water. So um, bubbles are made of the same substance as water, but they they appear and they act like individuals for a while, and then they pop. And when they pop, they're there, nothing leaves the system. You know, I mean, you could get into whether there's air in the water and blah, 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 but anyway, nothing leaves the overall system. It just changes form, and then it might become a bubble again. So uh, you don't need a, an eternal abiding self to pass from body to body. It's just that they're a different way of thinking. Another one is waves on water. So the waves, if you... Um, I live in Los Angeles, I'm not too far, I'm like 20 miles from the beach, but it takes like an hour and a half to get to the beach because of traffic. But if I go to the beach, um, I can watch the waves come in on the Pacific Ocean. And each wave uh, could be understood as a distinct separate entity. Uh, but if I actually take a larger view, they're, they're not distinct separate entities, but they act like they are, you know, in, in every important significant way. You could name them and say their lifespan is, you know, this long and you could talk about their history and everything else, but you'd still be not talking about individuals, you'd be just talking about aspects of the ocean, right? So that's another one. The other, the other version, this third version I'll give you, is um, if, you, if you have a flame on one candle and you have a candle that's not lit, if you take this candle and touch it to that one and then blow out the first candle, is this the same flame or is it a different flame? It's, it's, it's difficult to say. It's not exactly the same flame, but it depends for its existence on the flame before it. So, so all of that's there. Um, the problem is, uh, a lot of people kind of hear this, uh, especially we in the West hear this, and, and we don't understand it the way it, it's intended. Because one of the things that's, that's uh, a really important part of the teachings about reincarnation is that you don't want to reincarnate. Uh, that's a bad thing. Uh, and, and most of us, when we approach it, I know when I heard it, I thought, great, I get to reincarnate. Ooh. You know, maybe next time I'll be cuter, you know, or something, I don't know. Um, and and, and, and in, in the early Buddhist idea, the early Buddhist understanding of this, it wasn't, that wasn't the good thing. You, you were supposed to not reincarnate. Um, I just saw, somebody shared it with me on Facebook, so it's probably bopping around out there in the world. It's a, um, a Christian minister who is uh, denouncing Buddhism very loudly and rah, and he's, he, is, he is getting really, really upset about this very idea that I just said, which kind of impressed me that he read enough Buddhism that he understood that idea. Um, but he's going, the idea of Buddhism is to disappear. It's like suicide. You know, and he's getting really upset and frothing <laughs> at the mouth. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're right. That's, that's kind of the idea. Um, <laughs> so, so, so there's all of that. Um, reincarnation is a, is a difficult subject because we don't, um, personally, I'm agnostic about it, uh, my view. Uh, I, I don't, um, uh, I've had a few sort of meditative experiences that that gave me a very real sense that um, this idea that I talked about, no self, the idea that we are, um, each one of us is just a kind of pimple on 
on the uh, the surface of something much bigger. Um, that, uh, for me, after 10 or 15 years of meditation practice, ceased suddenly in one kind of moment, ceased to be a speculative philosophical proposition and suddenly became absolutely real. And it's very difficult to explain that, that's a whole other question. But, um, but having seen that that's not just a proposition, that that's actually the way things are, I'm a little bit inclined to, to believe in a kind of continuity, but um, as for reincarnation, I don't remember my past lives, I don't remember any of this stuff. So I feel that the best way to look at it is if you believe in reincarnation, this is the afterlife, um, which I find a very interesting way to look at it. So, so instead of going, gosh, I wonder what the afterlife is going to be like, you can actually go, okay, this is the afterlife. What am I going to do it's about the afterlife? Um, and uh, and that, that seems to be a, a very different sort of um, a proposition. So, you know, I remain agnostic about it. That's my long, drawn-out, stupid answer. Yeah. Is that negative idea about <clears throat> reincarnation maybe conditioned by what life was like then versus how we experience our lives today? It could be. You know, was that, was that a negative idea of reincarnation? I'm going to repeat these questions so people can hear them. Uh, conditioned by way, the way life was like uh, in those days. Yeah, I think so. My teacher uh, had made it, I have two teachers, a Japanese one and an American one. The Japanese one, who ordained me, uh, went to India once. And he said, he came back and he said, I know I understand where this idea of reincarnation came from, the negative version, because life is so hard in India. You know, even now, it must have been even harder. 5,000 years ago. Um, but there is this idea in Buddhism that, well, it's usually expressed as all life is suffering. You know, if, you, if, you go, if you go to Wikipedia or somewhere and uh, look up Buddhism, they'll say there are four noble truths, and the first noble truth is all life is suffering. Uh, the, word su the word translated as suffering is actually the word dukkha, which means more like unsatisfactory experience. The word dukkha actually comes from um, the, uh, it, it's a permutation of the word used for a wheel, broken one. So, you know, wheels in those days were made out of wood, and sometimes they break, and they go, ba-doom, 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 probably duka, 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 you know. Maybe that was a, a sound uh, for it. Uh, and, and so their, their idea of, of, of uh, all life is somehow that, like that. So even, even the most comfortable, wonderful life we can have is, is full of this kind of unsatisfactory experience. So um, I guess if you have aspirations, I guess the aspirations would be to go beyond that. And most of us kind of, if we're conditioned by a kind of materialistic point of view, we imagine that the only way to kind of get out of dukkha is to, um, is to get money, power, uh, whatever we can, do a lot of drugs, sell a lot of sex. Uh, but if you actually examine the lives of people who have those opportunities to, to have great amounts of money and power, uh, you find that they're just as dissatisfied uh, as, as the rest of us, which I think is one of the, one of the great things about living in this age, you know, because before 
the current age of, you know, I'm not much into celebrity and gossip magazines and scandals and things, but before that became a factor, you could sort of imagine that there were people off there in Camelot or wherever living these wonderful, perfect lives, and if only you could be like that, everything would be great. Now we can see it. Now we can open these newspapers and go, oh, look, uh, Brad and Angelina are getting divorced or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and you can see that their lives are, are also unsatisfactory. So, um, so yeah, I think the answer is yes. It was good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with my um, water bearer. Yeah, the whole thing about no self, right? Uh -huh. um, well, I was brought up in like evangelical Christianity, okay. right? And the way that this kind of reminded me of is like you had man's like a three-part being, mm -hmm. and you have the flesh, which is like, you know, kind of evil or whatever. And then you have your soul, which wants to do the right thing, but it's still imperfect. And then you have your spirit, which is like, you know, the perfect part of you. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's kind of like a new age idea, whatever they call it, like a higher self or something. So can, can it be like no self be something like this higher self? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, can no, uh, the short version of the question is, can no self be a re reference to the idea of a higher self? Um, it's interesting what you said about evangelical Christianity, because I didn't know that, about the three parts of the, of the being of a human. Um, Shinryu Suzuki, uh, who is the guy I quoted who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he had this idea of, uh, that he called Big Mind. Actually, it wasn't his idea. It was, um, it's an idea that's been around in Buddhism for a long time, but he, it's Daishin. But he started using the English phrase Big Mind. And there was a, another guy who I'm not very fond of uh, who's trademarked Big Mind and sells it as a process which you can use to get enlightened uh, instantly, which I think is horseshit. Um, but anyway. Um, but he, uh, Suzuki used to talk about uh, big, big mind and small mind. So that was his way of talking about it. So there is this idea uh, that does exist that um, I don't like. I, I don't like the word higher self because I think that's been. I think any time these ideas kind of get knocked around, they um, they become. You start having to invent new words because people to go. Oh yeah, I know what that is. And you go, no, you don't know what that is. <laughs> it's not that. Um, that's like the, 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 the greatest lesson I've ever learned from meditation is whatever you think it is, it's not that. Um, <laughs> and it always comes down to it. But, um, but there is that idea, that, that sort of explanation, that there is a kind of um, mind of the universe, that the entire universe is mind. Our philosophy in uh, in Buddhism, which uh, oh, words are always failing me because I'm not much of a scholar, but it's the idea that um, everything has the substance of mind, which doesn't, which isn't this solipsistic idea that we are just, um, you know, it's like uh, the Matrix where everything is just imaginary and everything's real, but everything has this has mind as a component of it which would mean that even atoms and molecules and things have a kind of, it's too, they're too simple to call that self-awareness, but they have the quality of mind. So everything, including the chair and the microphone and everything in here, uh, partakes in the quality of mind. The, the, the major difference between us and that is we're, we're a kind of sophisticated 
mechanism within the universe who can express its its mind qualities and and share it with others of its own kind, right? Uh, and that is significant, but it doesn't it doesn't mean it means we're different from everything else in a, in certain ways, but we're not we're non different from everything else in other ways. So this big mind includes everything. Um, it includes you know the the sun and the stars and the skies and and, and that motorcycle, motorcycle. Um, everything else is included within within mind. Um, so you if you one of the things that happens if you work on a meditation practice for a long time, this won't happen generally the first time you start meditating, and if it does, you might have a problem. <laughs> um, but after you work at it for a while, you'll start to become more aware of that aspect of things, which doesn't mean you suddenly become God, but you, you become aware that within, within the day-to-day -day life you're living, there is operating this sense of, of your individual self and a kind of larger universal self and that the best way you can live your life is to try to find a way to harmonize that, to try to find a way to make that work together. Uh, that's much easier said than done because we all have a lot of habits and neuroses and problems and personal history and messed up childhoods and whatever else that we're bringing to the situations. At a moment of so-called awakening or whatever uh, that, that sometimes happens, these sort of transcendent moments in Buddhism, don't dedicate all of your personal history. Uh, you just suddenly become aware that there's something more in operation uh, and that the best thing you can do is try to, as I say, harmonize with it. And this is where uh, the ideas of ethics and the ideas of the precepts come in. Because there's um, there's the uh, the ten Buddhist precepts, which I can never rattle off off the top of my head, are pieces of advice that are given by a teacher to a student uh, as ways to harmonize these aspects of ourself. Uh, and they are basically, well, it's a, as the title of this book says, it's "Don't be a jerk" is my explanation of it. So in any situation, don't be a jerk. You know, so any situation you find yourself in, find that way that is best for yourself, because you're part of this equation, uh, the other person or people you're dealing with, and the entire environment that you're living in. Um, which, you know, doesn't always mean 100% of the time being what's commonly understood as a nice guy, because sometimes you, you, you can't be a nice guy about certain situations, but you're always trying to find what is the best situation. I'm trying not to sound like a Jesus and Mary Chain concert here. <laughs> Some of you got the reference. Okay. Um, um, so it's like that or something like that. I saw another hymn. Okay, okay. They usually say that voidness or emptiness mm -hmm. is the ultimate medicine. Voidness or emptiness is the it's ultimate medicine? The ultimate medicine for all dissatisfaction. Mm. So would that include like the feelings of love and compassion within that Would that feel? Would that include the feelings of love and compassion with that in that emptiness? Yeah, uh, I would, I believe would they so. Be, they be the same kind of feeling. Love is part of it. I I 
Mm. I quoted it in my previous book, which I didn't bring uh, copies of, so I can't read it to you. Uh, but I was talking to Tim, my first Zen teacher, and he was talking about that. He made this really beautiful statement that I just happened to have my recorder on recording. So I was able to, to find it and transcribe it in that book, and it's called There Is No God and He Is Always With You. But um, uh, he talked about it because he likes to talk in terms of, of universal love, that universal love is part of that and we are part of this, you know, and love and compassion. I'm, uh, Tim's a much sweeter person than I am. I tend to be sort of nasty and, and, uh, and uh, just not personable and unfriendly and mean. Uh, so I have a hard time with, uh, with Compassion are a manifestation of that because it's 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 compassion especially because it's the understanding that anything I do to you or to anybody is ultimately something I'm doing to myself. So the only sensible way to live is to treat everybody with compassion and caring and some kind of sense of love. Um, the problem I find with it, and one of the reasons I don't get too much into it, is is I find that. Uh, the word love, the English word love, especially as used by Americans in the 21st century, tends to have this kind of like, puppy, I'm going to hug you, feeling to it, you know? And uh, that isn't always the best way to manifest love, you know? Um, it, it often is. It often works out really well. But uh, but there are other times when it, it, that's not that that's not going to work, and that and that that becomes a way of of uh, getting in the way of actual compassion. Um, you know, an example would be is it, it, if somebody you're very close to is is hurting themselves and other people with their own behavior. You can't you can't just go oh it's you have to kind of go in there and be tough about it. So so I think. All of that, that plays into it, but compassion is a way in which we uh, harmonize with the, the, the universe itself, the universal self. And I saw your hand up, the sun uh, amplifiers hat. <laughs> so um, I heard you talk a little bit about how like we're kind of these bound up, just thinking, feeling, not of matter, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it seems like the idea of no self is kind of trying to untie that knot a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, I was wondering what the connection in your mind is between the establishing of that kind of like movement to untie and using the breath in meditation. Ah. The uh, the connection between using that using the breath in meditation to sort of untie that yeah. knot of, of self. Yeah, and. I um I, can't, I, I, I studied with a teacher who didn't get much into meditation techniques, and if you study the Soto form of Zen Buddhism, what's what I find interesting and frustrating about it is there's no there's no technique at all involved. So you're not even watching your breath or doing any of this. Um, you are actually it's called shikantaza, which is a fancy Japanese way of saying just sitting. So what you're actually supposed to do with this practice is just sit. And, and you go, what am I supposed to do while I sit? It's like, well, you figure that out. You just sit. You, know, you sit still, you, you whisper, uh, and you do this practice, and you engage in it, but you're not told to, to do anything specific with it. Um, as far as using the breath and, and things are concerned, though, 
Um, one of the things you'll find if you do that practice is, is breath is an easy thing you can kind of count on. You know, as long as you're alive, you're going to be breathing, and it's very rhythmic, it's very steady, it's very dependable. You know, we hope. Um, so, so one of the ways of, of dealing with the boredom and frustration and kind of madness of of this uh, practice is to kind of watch your breath, watch it go, watch it come in, watch it go out, uh, and um, that. Can, can help you. One of the things Suzuki Roshi, the Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, says is something like, um, using the breath, you discover that what you are is just a swinging door opening and closing on the universe. Um, you breathe in, and, and this, this stuff from the outside comes into you, and you breathe out, and it goes out. And we do all kinds of things. I saw this. Uh, I don't know if it was Neil deGrasse Tyson or, or somebody like that talking about how it, when you're trying to plan for um, space travel, one of the ways to look at what a human being is as a component of a, of a, a spaceship, you know, because the, that's one way to try to make it all work, is as a kind of weird, uh, not very efficient water recycling unit. Uh, you know, it takes water in. It, it, it takes it out again, and it, and it does it does that kind of stuff, um, and that's another that's another aspect, you know, of what we do. So we are we we have this, especially as Americans. It's one of the interesting things about American culture. I I should say I left when I moved to Japan. One of the reasons I moved to Japan was I was very frustrated with American culture, and I wanted to get as far away from American culture as I could. Uh, because I just thought everything was screwed up and you know hopeless and blah 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 whatever. So I went to Japan, and within a, a year and a half of being there, I discovered this Zen teacher Nishijima Roshi, who I thought was a great Zen teacher. But one of the things that pissed me off about him was uh, he loved America and American culture. He thought American culture was great, and that and that Americans were really on the on the cusp of something, and that. Specifically, Americans were probably better uh, inclined because of our cultural upbringing to understand Buddhism uh, than Japanese people were. You know, he would say things like that, which was like, ah, why are you saying that? It's a screwed up country, everybody does. Um, but I kind of got to, to understand that. As a nation, from the founding, we really, really focused on that individual aspect, you know, of, of uh, building up ourselves as individuals. Um, because that has social advantages, and the people are more likely to invent things and, and um, um, progress if they think they're individuals and they can individually benefit from it. You know? So we put a lot of effort and a lot of our, uh, our, uh, our, our stuff into that. So, um, so we, we, lose, we lose this understanding that we are actually part of something. We kind of get this imagination that we're, we're individuals. Um, but we never are, you know. Human beings are are really, really social creatures. You know, you can think about, you know, if, if a bear survived alone in the wilderness for a year, people would be like, oh yeah, a bear survived. Who cares, you know? But if a human being survives alone in the wilderness for a year, there's like, a, he gets he gets a book deal, you know. And then everybody goes, how did you survive by yourself? And 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 we forget like how difficult that is. You know, we live in cities where it becomes very easy to get this illusion that uh, that we're individuals because I go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac and I pay for it with my money that I worked for in my job and you know 
blah. But you don't understand that there's a whole chain of, of, of things that have to be put into place in order for you to have a job and go to McDonald's and for the hamburger to be there and so forth. Um, so, um, so to get back to your question, that, that working with the breath is a way to kind of uh, focus on this this process where where we're we're actually depending on on you know the universe to to sustain us and we are uh, contributing something to that. Um, it's kind of hard to see, but but our out breath helps the plants grow. Everybody learns this in, in school, right? Um, and and does all kinds of things and. You know, part of our problem as human beings now is we're very out of balance with nature. We're taking a lot more than we're giving back. And I hope, you know, it's my, it's my hope and my kind of optimistic belief that we are moving in a direction towards uh, understanding that and making peace with it. I think we've got a long way to go. And that there's a lot of people trying to hold it back and, you know, for their own individual reasons, trying to put the brakes on that. But I think there's a general, even even though that still exists and even though that's still very strong and, and a problem, I think the overall tendency uh, is to is is for more and more people to understand that and to try to say if we're going to survive on this planet, we have to um, harmonize with it. We have to we have to start giving back what we take away, or else you know we're not going to. There are stronger forces out there. <laughs> All right, that's what I said to the folks in El Paso, Texas back in March of 2016. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the continuation of this podcast, please go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main means of economic support, and I really appreciate your donations. But as I said right at the beginning, this is offered for free, so you don't gotta pay if you don't wanna pay. We will see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.